0: This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Mithras Candle. Mithras Candles are 100% pure East Coast beeswax, handmade in Philadelphia by two of the loveliest humans I know. Mithras Candles have a gorgeous Byzantine drip style and a scent like apian paradise. This is natural, ancestral lighting, for your body, mind, and spirit. And if you use offer code WITCH, you'll get 13% off your first order at MithrasCandle.com. That's offer code WITCH for 13% off your first order at M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com the Many Moons 2021 Lunar Planner is almost here. Filled with rituals, spells, tarot pulls, and wisdom from 13 magical practitioners, this planner has got you and all your magical needs covered. The Many Moons Planner contains every single bank holiday and observed religious holiday, alongside every Wheel of the Year holiday, every lunar phase and moon sign, and major astrological transit for 2021. Stay anchored, stay organized, stay magical with this one-of-a-kind tool. Go to modernwomenprojects.com to snag your many moons 2021 planner now. That's modernwomenprojects.com. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello and welcome to the Witch Wave. Oh my gods, do I have a special episode for you today? I am talking to one of my heroes, Phyllis Curat, who is a trailblazer in the world of witchcraft. She is an author, a Wiccan high priestess, and an attorney who has fought and won so many battles to help practicing witches get legal protection. I think a lot about how calling oneself a witch, especially in public, is never an entirely safe or easy thing to do— And the fact that I am able to is due to not only an immense amount of privilege that I have as a white person, a now self-employed person, and someone who lives in a very progressive city, but it is also because lawyers like Phyllis and the clients she's represented over the years put themselves on the line to ensure that pagans and Wiccans are extended the same religious freedoms, benefits, and protections under U.S. law as other spiritual folks are. And Phyllis is of a generation of people who were self-identifying as witches in public when virtually nobody else was. So just her very existence in representation on the public stage has helped make coming out of the broom closet a little bit more safe for those of us who have followed in her and her generation's trail. And now listen, I know that not everyone who practices witchcraft or identifies as a witch sees it as their religion. Nonetheless, here in America, we still have the right to express and practice our spirituality openly and safely and without discrimination. And that is largely thanks to people like Phyllis. Being a modern witch is a tricky thing. Because, as I write in my book, there are so many ways to be a witch, and the term witch is used so fluidly and varies depending on context. But one thing I do know is that it is an identity that is often associated with the marginalized, the disenfranchised, and the oppressed. It's a word that has been used as a negative epithet for hundreds of years to demonize anyone considered other. Whether that's women or people of color or queer people. And that's why it's a word that people of all genders have chosen to reclaim in an act of self identification and celebration of that which makes us different from the white heteronormative cis male status quo. Witches honor the body, we honor nature. We honor intuition. We do our work individually and in collectives or covens, and so our power structures are largely decentralized and anti-hierarchical. And that's why I bristle whenever I hear anyone involved in witchcraft say that they are spiritual but not political. Because witchcraft is about power and identity and freedom and belief, and all of those things are always political concerns. Not to mention, regardless of our backgrounds, so many of our ancestors and elders have fought for our right to be who we are and to live with dignity. And that doesn't even account for the multitude of people around the world throughout time who lost their lives because they were falsely accused of being witches or otherwise discriminated against. And that's why I believe that as witches, we have the responsibility to fight for not only our freedom and safety, but for the freedom and safety of people who are part of any marginalized group or additional marginalized groups. So I hope that if you are living in the U.S., you are registered to vote and that you have a plan to vote and that the people you vote for are also committed to protecting not just themselves and the most wealthy or the whitest or most allegedly christian and i say allegedly because a lot of the christians i know actually practice real love and social justice I hope you will vote for candidates who see all people as worthy of dignity and protection and well-being and opportunity and respect. And if you have extra time or extra money, I hope you'll consider putting some of either of that toward encouraging others to vote and supporting candidates who care about all people and the planet we live on. Go to IWillVote.com if you need to get started. And personally, I'm donating my time and money to places like SwingLeft.org to help ensure that more progressive candidates are elected down the ballot. Now that I'm off my soapbox... Though, what is a podcast if not a soapbox? I can't wait for you to hear my interview with pagan pioneer and social justice witch, Phyllis Curat. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on the Witchwire. Who is it? Wishes. Madeline writes Hi, Pam. I've been practicing witchcraft on and off since I was 12. I'm 31 now, but especially more so within the last few years. I feel like I've read so many books and more or less know what I'm doing, but I don't know if it's working. I recently had a reading where she said I would have a spiritual awakening, but I've never felt spiritual outside of believing in all of this stuff. I'm wondering if I'm missing something, because I feel like I should be feeling more spiritual in my practice. Do you have any advice? Hello, Madeline, or is it Madeline, or (laughs) Madeleine? Such a beautiful name. Well, this is one of those times where I wish that this was a two-way conversation because I have a lot of questions for you. I guess the main one is, what do you mean by spiritual? Because when I use that word, it doesn't necessarily refer to formal worship or formalized religion or even big earth-shattering revelations. It just means being connected to something that makes you feel more alive and more interconnected with something greater than yourself. That something doesn't have to be a god or goddess or a pantheon of deities. It might just be a force, a source, a capital S spirit that is woven through everything and everyone. And when you say that you don't know if your witchcraft is working, I would ask, what is it that you're hoping to get out of it? Because if we're just talking spells that you might be casting, that aren't coming into fruition, that's a whole separate topic and there are many reasons that a spell may or may not work or work quite the way you envisioned or hoped for. But it's sounding to me like you're asking about something even broader than just spells. Because my magical practice, my spiritual path, isn't just about spellcraft. And there are some witches who only do spells and they don't even bother worrying about how the spells work or who or what they are communicating with when they cast those spells and you know what? That is absolutely fine. But I'm guessing that you're asking about why you're not feeling big, lofty, spiritual feelings. And I'll say first of all that I don't feel those feelings every second of the day. There are some moments when I'm way more tuned in than others. And I think that's true of virtually any witch that you will talk to. But what has helped me access those feelings is getting out of my head and focusing on the embodiment of my magic. So literally focusing on how my body feels and how my spirit feels. And I often know that my magic is working, or more accurately, that I'm in the flow of magic, when I have sensations rather than thoughts. When I'm in the flow of magic, I feel more aware, more attuned. My breath quickens, or slows depending on the energy of the work I'm doing. I sometimes get this tingly sensation down my arms or in my hands or at the back of my neck, and I feel present. A lot of those feelings come from working with the body and the spirit in active, intentional ways, giving thanks, writing words to spirit straight from my heart, Lighting candles, meditating, dancing, swaying, chanting, being in nature, being in the presence of other people who inspire me and enliven me and who make me feel seen and safe, communing with a meaningful work of art or piece of music, being still. So spirituality doesn't have to feel like a lightning bolt or having shocking revelations. It can feel like a gentle unfurling. So instead of focusing on big outcomes or giant psychic quakes, maybe try quieting yourself and becoming more in tune with your breath and your body. Because so often... Spirit speaks to us in subtle signs and gentle shifts. We just have to commit to paying attention, trusting our intuition, and being still enough for magic to make itself known. I hope that helps, and I hope my following conversation with the amazing Phyllis Kirat helps you too. Now, on to my guest. Phyllis Curat is one of America's first out witches, an activist attorney for the rights of witches and the author of four internationally best-selling books, including a book that had a giant impact on my path. Book of Shadows, A Modern Woman's Journey into the Wisdom of Witchcraft and the Magic of the Goddess. She was named one of the Ten Gutsiest Women of the Year by Jane magazine, and in 2014 was inducted into the Martin Luther King Jr. Collegium of Clergy and Scholars. Phyllis received One Spirit Seminary's 2018 Service to Humanity Award and Kindred Spirit's 2020 Personality of the Year Award. Her Awaken the Witch Within online course and YouTube series Wicca have more than 2 million views. Widely profiled in the media, Time published her call for religious equality as one of, quote, America's leading voices. She is Vice Chair Emerita of the 2015 Parliament of the World's Religions, the creator of the historic inaugural Women's Assembly, and the founder of the Temple of Ara, the first Wiccan tradition to integrate core shamanism in the early 1980s. Phyllis received her B.A. in philosophy from Brown University and her Juris Doctor from NYU. Now, despite all of these incredible accomplishments, she's taken some time out of the spotlight for a while. And so it is my great, great honor to have her on the show now to talk about her incredible journey as a public pioneering witch, her legal career, and her enthusiastic embrace of elderhood. Phyllis joined me from her home on Long Island via Zoom. Phyllis Curat, welcome to The Witch Wave. I am so excited to be here. (laughs) I am so honored to be speaking with you. And it's really a case of stars aligning because, as I was telling you a little bit off mic, a whole series of synchronicities have led me to this moment to get to talk to you. You know, your books have been hugely influential on me, and I've had your name on my list of dream guests for a long time now. And then out of the blue, my dear friend David emailed me a couple weeks ago, and he said, "'Hey, do you happen to know Phyllis Curat? "'Because I'm starting to study at an officiant school. "'I think it's called One Spirit, and she's teaching a class on Wicca, "'and she just seems really cool. "'And I was like, oh my goodness, she's one of my heroes. "'Definitely take that class. "'She's going to be amazing.'" And then two weeks later, you email me about (laughs) your tarot deck. And I just, ah like, this is supposed to happen. So anyway, this is so, so thrilling. And thank you again for
1: being here. Uh, It really is a pleasure. And who are we to argue with the stars? They do not demand, but they do incline. You know, if you're paying attention, which is what witches do. the signals come through I'm really glad that this is happening because I had I loved your book it made me blissfully happy so I know we're not going to have time to talk about everything we possibly could but whatever we get to talk about today I know it's going to be a pleasure oh
0: thank you so much and you know it really blows my mind to think about my book finding its way to you because your book I believe it was your first
1: book book of shadows is that right Phyllis Yes, it was. I cannot believe it's 22 years now. Yes, it was my memoir. And other than Sybil writing a book about herself, there really had been no memoirs to that point. There were tons of how-to books, stand here, say this, do that, grind this. But there were no stories. And the story of how, uh, of all things, an Ivy League New York lawyer became a witch and a public one, early on, I mean, I, I was public in 1981, was a story that I felt really should be told. And I knew that the best way to teach was through story, through the heart, through engaging people's emotions. And so, you know, Fools in where wise ones, <laughs> they shouldn't tread. So <laughs> I sat down and, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. I wrote. and. Oh. It was it was magic for me to write it. So it's wonderful when I find that it is magic or kicked off magic or affirmed magic for the folks who read it. You almost made it to Oprah, but not quite. <laughs> oh, well, it's Oprah's loss, damn it.
0: <laughs> well, let me just talk about Book of Shadows because I know this book came out in 1998. It came into my life in 2009. And I've spoken on other episodes about how 2009 was this hugely transformative year for me. And my husband and I took a trip upstate and we were at this magical bed and breakfast and stars aligned. And I had my first tarot reading with Rachel Pollock of all people on that trip. Like it was wild. And I'm trying to remember, honestly, Phyllis, I would be lying if I said I remember how your book even came into my life. I I don't remember if I stumbled on it up there at a bookshop or if I just brought it with me, but that's the book I was reading. And this is the same year that I became more brave about being a public witch myself and found my teacher and so on and so forth. And your book was such a catalyst for me. So I just want to say thank you for having the bravery to put your authentic witch self out in the world and writing about it so masterfully. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Phyllis.
1: Thank you, dear, very much. When I wrote it way back in the old days, we did have the internet along with owl delivery. (laughs) And a lot of people wrote to me after it came out. And I was sort of overwhelmed by that and negligent in responding. I kind of withdrew from the world in a personal way, but as an advocate, it threw me forward. And so I, gosh, I did so much media around it. And that was a very interesting year. 98, for me, was a very significant accelerant in my own life and my own willingness to be public. It was also a big year. I think you may have mentioned that year or the things around it, charmed was out and practical magic came out. And Mm. there was this sudden rush of the witch returning into popular culture. And still with all of her contradictions and her Hollywood glamours, but it was the good witch. Mm -hmm. She was there, even if she wasn't so good, like in charmed, right? Mm. And it was a moment of shift. You could feel it. There was like a tectonic shift and up through the cracks, I came and she came. And I think it accelerated each generation, as you discussed really wisely in Waking the Witch, each generation has its cultural expression of the witch. And there's always a tension between good and bad. For me, the opportunity was, you know, they were fascinated by the idea that someone could be a New York lawyer with an Ivy League background in philosophy, you know, and be Mm -hmm. willing to publicly call herself a witch because it immediately conjures all of the negative stereotypes So why in the world would somebody do that? So it was an opportunity. And the reason that I went public immediately way back and at the very, very beginning, was because I saw what it was, not what it wasn't, but what it was. And I come from a family of social justice activists. My father was a union organizer in the 1930s. My mother gave up her masters at Columbia to be a community organizer for the NAACP in the 1930s. So, you know, it was in my blood that where there was an injustice, the truth had to be spoken and the wrong had to be remedied. And I had begun as a young lawyer fighting organized crime and trade unions, which is what I had expected to do, Mm. and found that the advocacy that I was intended for was... Although, you know, progressive causes and the trade union movement and all these things are an integral part of who I am, hence Aradia. By which you mean your your magical name, Aradia, or
0: hence you choosing her for your magical name? Well, I think she she chose me. I
1: sort of gave that a little bit of that story towards the end of the book where I described my initiation. And literally the book of Women's Holy Mysteries by Z Budapest. There was nothing back in nineteen eighty eighty one. You know, there were a few books and some dreadful ones mostly. Mm -hmm. But that book literally flew off the shelf at the Magical Child on the night of my initiation. And I thought I had chosen my name, but the book fell off the bookshelf and I opened it up seemingly randomly. And there was the story of Aradia as best she could tell it at the time with what little was known at the time. I was like, well, that's it. You know, that's clearly it. She was a witch, but she was a fighter on behalf of the people against the nobility in the early 1300s, said to be the daughter of Diana. There's all sorts of mythologies about her and the question of the reality of her as a figure. We're all called in different ways, right? There are different fascinations and summonings that come to us, and they speak to us on very profound levels that are unique to each of us. And yet we're all called forth into this very sacred kind of landscape.
0: Thank you for saying that, Phyllis, because I get asked this all the time, and I can only imagine you've been asked this for many years now, which is like, how do I know I'm a witch? Or how do I know I'm on the right path? Or what steps should I take? And, and my answer is always, like, there's no one size fits all and just to trust your own path. You know, I often say, follow the trail of cosmic breadcrumbs. And I love that Book of Shadows starts out with you recounting all of the signs or breadcrumbs that you were receiving as a young lawyer in New York, as someone who is managing a band, which mm. sounds super awesome. You know, you start to have these dreams and you find yourself called by this particular statue in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I love that statue too. I was hoping you could recount that story for us.
1: The idea of the breadcrumbs is exactly it. I think almost everyone is called. And the summoning of the sacred from without and the stirring of the sacred within is a magical dance. And I think we're all called. The question is whether you're inclined to listen or not. And if you're asking the question of, am I a witch, And how do I become a witch? That discernment, that attention to the signs and the synchronicities and the signals, as you were talking about when we started all of this, is one of the sure signs that you're a witch. And it happened for me. I was in law school. Why did it happen? Because I think there's a witch in all of us and the world needs her witches now more than ever. And I think that we are being called. The difference between myself and lots of other people, especially more than 40 years ago was that I paid attention that there was some awakening within me to this magic mm. it's a sensibility that awakens within you I've often described it as you know sort of living in a black and white world and it begins to shift into color you know mm. it is an expansion of a sensibility of a sense of the sacred of whether you see it or hear it, you know, whether it comes through music or you know a passion for the arts or poetry or the universe, as soon as you indicate an inclination, a willingness, the universe comes to the dance and leads you. Then one of the mistakes that a lot of people make in a masculine approach of, I will read this book the how-to books. The how-to books, or they'll go online for a spell. I get this all the time. You know, people asking me to give them a spell for, and it's a mechanical idea of what magic is or how magic works. And it's an old model. To me, it's a very patriarchal model, which people don't realize that it, it's a residua from a mistaken idea about the nature of the divine and the nature of magic that we can have control over the earth right over the elements that we can manipulate through supernatural means you know rather than scientific means and control things to give us the gratification that we're seeking it's about having power power over and dominion over and that's the old image right you know the wizard and not, that's how we were taught at the beginning mm. is commanding and controlling the postures of gesticulation and the language of summoning stirring and calling up and for women that can be very empowering right when you're stripped of power to be given language of power and the sense of control uh, and the capacity to do that it's extraordinary so one of the things i talk about a lot in book of shadows are those early spell castings and the magic that we made and how they manifested which was shifted my entire sense of what the world is made of of how the unseen is just as real as that which is seen but when i was asked to write that book and I went back 15 years later and reflecting on the experiences that I'd had in that first coven where I was initiated and trained as a young woman and a young witch I realized that the stories I most wanted to share like the story of the living civil were the stories of summoning and that no magic that I could conjure for myself no intent which is so important everybody talks about especially these days you know how important setting your intention is in manifesting your magic and there is truth in that but whatever you can conjure for yourself pales by comparison to the great story that will come out of your communion with the sacred of your willingness to dance with this extraordinary magic that. We're invited to participate in a greater magic than anything you can begin to conceive when you first undertake this path. On that note, I'm being summoned to take a quick commercial break.
0: So we're going to leave the Libyan Sybil as a cliffhanger. We'll be right back. Look, it's hard enough grappling with our own emotions under ordinary circumstances but even more so when the world is going through massive collective challenges. I am so grateful for my therapist, and even though I've done sessions in person for years, I've been pretty amazed at how effective online therapy has been for me right now. And so I can heartily recommend BetterHelp an online counseling service, which can provide you with your own licensed professional therapist to talk to via video or phone sessions. So if you have anxiety issues like I do, or are dealing with depression, stress, trauma, grief, or even just day-to-day struggles with your relationships or your family, or just feeling like you're not meeting your personal goals right now, which, let's be honest, has been very difficult for most of us these days, I really encourage you to reach out to the folks at BetterHelp. They will connect you with a counselor that you can start chatting with in under 24 hours. Now, a few things I really appreciate about BetterHelp is that it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, plus they offer financial aid to those who qualify, and they make it super easy to change counselors so you can find one that you really click with. Best of all, Wave listeners, that's you! Get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com com slash witchwave. That's com slash witchwave. I believe that all human beings can benefit from therapy. I certainly have myself. And I'm so glad that it's becoming more accepted and more accessible to do so. So please pop over to betterhelp.com slash witchwave and find a great counselor to talk to. Better help is confidential, convenient care, and you, my friend, deserve that. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Phyllis Curat. So, Phyllis, will you please tell the story <laughs> of the Libyan
1: symbol? <laughs> Chapter one, Book of Shadows. I'll open it up and read it to you. It was amazing. So I was my second year in law school, and I started having... Dreams that came true and precognitive sensibilities, and having been raised not in a religious household, I had no framework, and having been too young for the psychedelic '60s, I didn't. So I started reading books on physics, you know, and they sort of explained that that the mind has capacities beyond what we normally think of. I would dream, and it would happen. I would sense, and the person would say it, but it never explained why. One of the things that I was experiencing was a, a particular dream of a figure who appeared to me. It was a woman. She was bare chested, very contemplative, never really made eye contact with me. It was like she was staring off and she was larger than life. I would just be dreaming and she would appear in the dream. That was the dream. There she was seated, bare chested, crown on her head and a light at her throat. And it repeated. The dream always had the same, was short, It was powerful, and I would awaken from it. The light at her throat would bleach out the dream. Everything bleached white, and I would wake up. It happened four times over the course of two years. Mm. I graduated. I went to Washington, D.C. to work with Ralph Nader, fighting organized crime and trade unions, and came back to New York for another job in a similar foundation. And the magic had stopped. That's what Washington will do. Um, (laughs) I came back to New York, I was managing a rock and roll band and I was trying to jumpstart the magic that I'd been experiencing in law school and met a woman who became a dear friend who called herself a white witch. And one day in the midst of a lot of mayhem in my own life, she took me to have my tarot cards read. And she took me to the back of this dusty old bookstore. And all I could think was, what would my mother say? What would your mother say? I never told her this part of the story. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Although I did read the book to her. She passed away before, right before it was published. Anyway, there I was. And I had my tarot cards heard. And it was really extraordinary because this, this little woman uh, who's a few years older than I was telling me things that no one knew, that I had shared with no one. So when it was all over, it began. She said, what's your question? And I said, where does the path lie? Without hesitating, she shot back, she said, it lies within. And without hesitating, I said, well, how do I get there? Because my whole life was outwardly motivated, you know, social justice, fix the outside world and the world will be a better place. And that was my job. And I believed in, I still do, but I'd had all these extraordinary things happening within and they had disappeared. She said, well, let's see what the cards have to say. And she did this Remarkable reading. And at the end of it, she said, I have a women's group. It meets every week. I think you might find what you're looking for there. Why don't you come? And I thanked her and I paid her. And I said, I would think about it. And I left and I had absolutely no intentions of thinking about it because she was a witch, you know, (laughs) white or otherwise. What do we know? Yeah, but the universe knew.
0: And uh, and sorry, Phyllis, I should just interject to say, when you're saying white witch, oh. in today's parlance, you just mean like a positive magic worker. Because cause I know we talk so much about racial justice now that sometimes those
1: words get confusing for people. It was a term that was used back in the 80s, we used it 40 years ago to try to retrieve the image of the witch. And it was sort of this stepping stone, to the idea of a witch being good, but it's racist. And, you know, I understand that's your intention. So I'm meaning it historically in the use at that time. Exactly. Thank you. It didn't help at that point either, because the stereotypes were so strong that I was like, no way. First of all, witches don't exist. Second of all, if they think they do, they're really weird. And although I think you are marvelous, dear friend, not so much. uh, No. And a few months later, I was, wandering around the Metropolitan Museum of Art, a place that you and I and probably many others share as a kind of temple. Yes. And I had spent a lot of time there during all of these events as a young law student. It called me and I found myself wandering through and fascinated by the egyptian collection the greek collections and loving mm. that restaurant that you talk about in your book that my mother used to take me to as a child that was mm. i miss it so
0: much can i just say i miss that beautiful restaurant
1: yeah it was pure magic right and it, it was transporting in so many profound ways yeah so that was my temple that i'd wandered through without knowing it, it was a temple and i was back there trying to figure out what to do with my life and work and this and that and boyfriends and this and that and and I've wandered through the temple of gender through some doors that hadn't previously been there out into the American wing, which you mentioned in Waking the Witch, with your mention of Diana, that fabulous statue of Diana. And I'm wandering through it's an exquisite space full of pagan imagery and bacchantes and all sorts of things. And I'm wandering through and I turn and there's a line of statues and there she was seated in front of me. She had materialized, larger than life, carved out of marble. It was uh, I still can't and the room bleached out. I sort of I kind of swooned. I it got very hot and I kind of passed out and I found myself being seated in a chair by a guard. I was afraid to look at her. I was staring at her toes for a long time and I finally worked my way up. She was bare chested. In my dream, she was holding a book, but in the statue, she's holding a ream of papers. She's wearing a very unusual crown. And around her throat was the Tetragrammaton, the six-pointed star, which was the light that I had seen always. And she was indeed gazing off. And she had this look of almost tragic in a certain sense. And I looked at the plaque and it said the Libyan Sybil. <laughs> and I sat there for quite a while. And then I went home, across Central Park. And in my Oxford English, annotated Oxford English dictionary, I put on my glasses, which I was already wearing at that point. And I looked at the word sybil, which I knew was vaguely magical, but it said, an ancient prophetess, a witch. Mm. So I called my friend and I said, do you think it's still open? And she said, you should go. And I went and I stayed for three and a half years. I was initiated and became a high priestess and went public shortly after my initiation. Sorry, just to clarify, you went to the coven meeting? It wasn't a coven yet. It was a group of women. They met every week for a couple of months and every week the group got smaller. And finally, at the end of about, I don't know, two months or so, There were about eight of us left and the two priestesses and an older woman who I refer to in my books as Nona, who was with us for a short while, but who played a very important role for me. And one of the two priestesses announced one evening, okay, so this is our coven. (laughs) And I almost ran out the door. (laughs) This is how naive I was. I wasn't even like,
0: coven? Covenant. Non-consensual covening.
1: Right. I was like, oh, is that what we've been doing? And what happened to all those women that disappeared? <laughs> right. I had no idea what they were doing every week. I mean, it was incoherent to me. They would stand in a circle and they would honor the four directions. And the, there was all, a table in the middle filled with statues of goddesses. So there we were. And I was like, okay, because the magic had started again. Mm-hmm. And I worked with them for three and a half years. We were a, a very diverse group. Half the group were gay. Three of the eight women were black. It was sublime. I do a lot of explaining in Book of Shadows, but in fact, there were, there were not a lot of explanation. There was a lot of doing, mm. not a lot of philosophizing. And that really worked for me because I'm, I'm a head person. And so to have a profoundly experiential introduction to a world that was in fact charged full of divine magic and deeply feminine was profound. It was life-changing for me. And that's the story that I told that first year leading up to my initiation.
0: Yes, and people are gonna have to read Book of Shadows to find out what happens next. But I just want to highlight, you know, talking of symbols, I was reading a little bit more about the Libyan Sybil statue in preparation for this talk. And um, for those who aren't familiar with it, you can still go see it in The American Wing. It's by William Wetmore story and it dates to 1860, carved in 1861. And Story described this statue as his anti slavery sermon in stone. And it was inspired by events leading up to the Civil War. And so I think it's really interesting, too, that. Your psyche and spirit were attracted to this image that is not only tapping into witches and goddesses, but is also this symbol of social justice,
1: which is such a through line of your spiritual and professional work as well. So... None of that was known at the time. I tried to get information about the statue and learned a little bit about story that he was a lawyer, that his father had been a Supreme Court judge. Yes. He was a lawyer, Phyllis? Yeah. yeah, and he'd moved to Rome, which for me has always been this magical thing, and I have a huge community now in Italy. He was definitely part of the transcendentalist movement in the United States. And he was a part of a group of American artists who were over there. And Harriet Beecher Stowe visited him at his studio because they were part of this New England, you know, progressive, transcendental, spiritual. And she told him about an encounter she had had an opportunity to meet with, to hear Sojourner Truth speak and how absolutely riveting it was and profound and moving for her. And it inspired this statue. I only discovered that a few years back, you know, the blossoming of the Internet and, you know, research and information, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was extraordinary to me to discover that in part because of my mother and her background and her commitment, which many stories about, a central part of my upbringing and my perspective, my motivation, my life. And there she was. And it made sense to me because to the best of my ability to sort of look at the Libyan Sybil, it it seemed she was most likely a priestess of Isis, who was a central figure in my early awakening to the divine feminine. But part two of the story, in 2014, I've always refused to be limited by the stereotypes of the witch, and I've always fought against them, and I've always done so very publicly for lots of reasons, most of it being the profound wisdom, the empowerment for women, the challenge to you know because the witch is the stereotype onto which the patriarchal culture's fear of women and their power and their sexuality and their spirituality has always been the person onto whom those have been that fears have been projected all right, so all that for a while, I left because i I needed um to rediscover the roots of my spiritual path. And what do
0: you mean you left,
1: Phyllis? I left public visibility. I left the community. i was still teaching. I was teaching mostly in Italy and in Europe. But I wanted to move away from pagan politics and from the way in which I had been practicing. Hmm. A lot of my work has been about deconstructing the sort of residual ceremonial magic and biblical influences and patriarchal perspectives. And I've always had a shamanic approach because I was practicing core shamanism at the very same time that I was training. And so I brought all those techniques in and understood right away that what we were trying to retrieve and recreate was, in fact, the indigenous wisdom traditions, plural, of our Euro, African, Middle Eastern, indigenous ancestors, that there's a nexus throughout the Fertile Crescent where... Western civilization meets African civilization. and The goddess Isis really captures that and the Libyan symbol really captures that. So there's this wonderful confluence and movement of energies and cultural cross-pollination rooted in the divine feminine, I think more than anything else. Anyway, so I took some time off. I was being called by the divine embodied by Mother Earth, as I think most of us are now. Mm -hmm. It's a longer story and it'll be the subject of the next memoir and the next few books that I'm working on now. I was rediscovering sort of the purpose of all of it had been to come into a place of simple revelation and communion, that the magic that we were seeking was happening constantly and that we were constantly participating in it. The dilemma was the blindfold that had been tied on by history, by habit, by enculturation, and that the trick was to get the blindfold off and that the techniques all worked the purpose of them was to remove that blindfold and that when it comes off what you see is that you're living in a world that is fully sacred and a full and true embodiment that spiritual realms are not just other realms fairy realms or non-ordinary realities but embodied by creation and that the wisdom that is shared with us by creation is profound sacred that it provides a, a template for living in simple and practical ways, but also in deeply spiritual, sacred ways. That spirit and embodiment, right? That energy and expression, that world and wonder are one thing. They are two aspects of the same thing. And that the path that I've been on was one of embodiment, that the ability to practice all sorts of techniques that witches use, that shamans have used, because to me, witches are shamans, the word witch, witcher is actually a 5,500-year-old word. It goes back to the Proto-Indo-European, and it's connected to wisdom. And if you're going back 5,500 years, you're talking about shamanism. And there's universal wisdom, universal practices and universal wisdom always connected to shamanism. It's the ability to enter realms of sacred, to know that spiritual realms are actually accessible to us and that there's wisdom and there's healing and there's communion and there's practical guidance that you bring back into the world in which we live every day. But the most important gift is the gift of new sight, that when you return, you see the world as sacred. You don't have to just go into realms of spirit to see it as spiritual and sacred. You come back to this world and see it as such. And I need exactly. to. I needed to experience that. And so I spent years doing it. The same time, because I can't help but be a social justice activist, I was elected to the Board of Trustees of the Parliament of the World's Religions, which is one of the oldest, the oldest interfaith organization in the world. And it had reincarnated in 1993, where I had helped bring the covenant of the goddess that I was chair of at the time and other pagan organizations. I helped them participate. And it was sort of our coming out on an international stage. And I'd stayed active and involved. And finally, I was elected to the Board of Trustees and ended up being elected as vice chair. And through all of that, I had the opportunity and the honor of being inducted into the Martin Luther King Collegium of Clergy and Scholars in Atlanta.
0: Wow, Phyllis, that's huge.
1: Congratulations. Thank you. It was. And I was up on that stage feeling completely unworthy in comparison to the man for whom that entire institution, you know, had been created and named and honored. It just felt like a blessing. And then I had to be there for a reason, but the reason couldn't possibly have been what I had done thus far, because whatever it had been, and it was a lot, no question, and I've earned my own respect, still nothing by comparison. And I sat up there, I was alone too, having had no children, no partner at the time, and having kind of left the community behind. And it just felt like I had to be there for a reason, but it couldn't possibly be the reason of all the things that had brought me there. It had to be something else. Perhaps something in the future. And when it was all over, I had a few hours before my plane left for New York, and I randomly picked the High Museum in Atlanta. I was like, okay, I'll go spend a couple of hours at this museum. I knew nothing about it, but you know, I like museums and they're always magical places, I'll go. And I felt myself on the second floor being pulled. It was this like, you know, tractor beam. And I walked across this little walkway that over an open space and came into this long, narrow hallway and turned right. And at the end of the hall was the Libyan Sybil sitting in a spotlight. And I was like, she can't be here. She's in New York. I'm hallucinating. You know, I started to get that white. <laughs> yeah. And I walked out. I was like, just keep breathing. This is many years later. Uh, and I walked down so slowly. She was smaller, and there she was. And I realized she had to have been one of the uh, one of Story's studies right before he did the large version. But I had no idea that he'd done that, and I had no idea that she was there. And I thought to myself, "Indeed, it is not what you have done. You know, it's the road ahead, not the road behind. Whatever lies ahead." just as I had no idea, I had no idea of what the path was when she appeared in my dreams and when she materialized in front of me. You know, she is a Sybil, one of the Sybils of the goddess, and she appeared as I needed her to years ago when I did not know where the path was, how to find it, or how to walk it, or where it would lead. And she appeared again. And with her appearance, that's when I began to return to my work and came back and saw, yeah, there's a world of witches now. Look at that, you know, there is a world of young witches. And it seemed at first that perhaps I had nothing to offer. And then it seemed that perhaps indeed, I had a lot to offer, you know, that there's a role for the crones, which is what I am now. And it was an important role, you know, that I should simply keep saying yes, you know, the path would open before me and I would be shown what I needed to. And that's how you know you're a witch. You hear the summoning, you see the signs, you accept them, although the path before you may not be clear. And as you walk it, you come to know that you are sustained and supported, nay, that you are loved and Despite the challenges and the woundings and the initiations and the unmakings, because you have to be unmade to be made again, you're being called and your job is waiting for you. And it is in the finding of your purpose that you're guided to that purpose that your strength arrives. And we need to be very attentive to the gifts that are our purpose and the strength that it gives us because time is short and we have a lot of work to do. And that's one reason there for me. I know that there are many reasons why young women are called to this. And at first, it may be simply the glamour and the possibility of the conjuration of love or whatever. Like I said, the magic that you can make is marvelous. There is a measure of magic far beyond anything that you can anticipate when the path begins to unfurl before you. Kind of like Dorothy, right? We're not going to have time, but I have to tell you about the synchronicities with the Theosophical Society for whom I've been teaching quite frequently lately in Chicago. So great affection for them because of the Wizard of Oz. Yes. Another time.
0: Another time. And speaking of time, Phyllis, I'm going to have to take another commercial break. We'll be right back. Clarissa Eck is a potter creating functional, hand-carved, illustrated mugs, planters, and vessels which call upon animal messengers, ancient plant knowledge, and hermetic symbolism to stir the depths of the spirit. Every piece is thrown on the wheel, then drawn on with a soft pencil and carved into, one at a time. Each Clarissa Eck vessel is a spell, a gentle reminder of those in-between moments that make life rich with wonder and mystery. I love Clarissa's pieces because they're designed with ritual in mind. Consider a microwave-safe mug for herbal tea, a potion cup for tinctures, or an altar plate to hold incense and candles. I happen to have candle holders by her, and they are two of my favorite pieces. Find Clarissa's work at Clarissa Eck on Instagram. That's Clarissa Eck or at www.clarissa-eck.com. Welcome back to the Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Phyllis Curat. So, Phyllis, I want to talk to you about your professional life. You were, I don't know if you're still practicing law, but you certainly were for a long time. And you are someone who have this very successful career and were also a public witch. You are also a public witch. So I would love to know like, how you navigate those two parts of your identity. And I ask because, you know, for 14 years, I had a very public career in corporate America too. And, you know, I was kind of becoming more of a public witch as I was also becoming more of a public person at my day job and you know, I'm blessed in that right now I don't have to worry about integrating those parts of myself as much since I'm doing this full time. But I know that there are so many listeners who have day jobs who are called to walk this path and who might not necessarily know how public to be, how much to disclose, how to navigate those different
1: aspects of their life. So, how has that been for you? I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer. It was easier because I was pretty quickly self-employed as a lawyer, and that allowed me to be a witch so I could stay up all night and then get up at 10 instead of having to be in an office at 8.30 or 9. So, and I found the two aspects of my being to be integrated, the cultivated intuition of my spirituality was useful in my professional context, and my professional perspective and training, get it done, do it on time. If you commit to doing something, follow through. you know kept my work as a priestess well grounded. But in terms of being public, of course, I was in New York, and that gave me you know quite a bit of privilege and I was on television, in documentaries, in the newspaper certainly, you know, on Halloween when they were looking for witches, you know, I would be there explaining what a witch was not and why the stereotypes were stereotypes and what a witch actually was.
0: Which, P.S., it's insane to me that we still have to do that because you did it for so long and, you know, I'm being called to have to do that every Halloween and it's a pleasure to some degree, but it's also like, (laughs) when are people going to catch up?
1: I always used to say, and I still say, when they call me on Mother's Day or Earth Day, I'll know that my work is done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. When they're not interested in the article. you know. But on the other hand, my local advertising flyer pseudo magazine came with a little thing about Halloween. And the first two paragraphs was all about how Halloween has its roots in the Celtic holiday of Samhain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, progress is made slowly and the tale of history goes to the winners. And so, you know, we have a lot of work to do. We will be doing this work for a very long time. And as you pointed out, there's a lot of potency in the danger of the image. This is a longer conversation and a fascinating one that I think you did, you know, brilliantly in your work. So my work has been slightly different. You know, it has been to take a bit of the terror of the witch out of the public imagination and to express the witch as the shaman, because to me, that's ultimately, that is the, the deep root of what it means to be a witcher. It is to be a memory keeper, and it is to be a wise one, and it is to be a seer of the sacred. And I think there's a witch in everyone. The retrieval of the capacity to see the world as indigenous people see it is a huge challenge for the Western psyche. And because of the cultural context that we've created up for five thousand years, but it is the challenge that we have to rise to. And because the practices work, I mean, to me that's the thing I've loved about this: is a spirituality that it's not a belief system; it's a spiritual practice. And if you work it, it'll work. What you see will have infinite variation because we're all so unique. But like we said at the beginning, you know, the paths are very special; they're unique to each of us. But we're in the same kind of sacred landscape, and that's not just realms of spirit. That's the world in which we live, which is sacred. So to be public to me was to articulate that, you know, to say this is your lost history. This is the essential wisdom that we need in order to survive the next 50 years. The damage that we've done to the planet, to ourselves, to each other, it's a reflection of a spiritual crisis when we cast the divine out of the world and started to dominate this one. And there is a way to correct for that distortion in our consciousness and our lens, and it's through these practices and it's through the retrieval of the universal wisdom that comes when you practice, and it's shared by cultures across the globe. There's cultural diversity, but there's also a universal wisdom and truth there, and and we need it. And witches are the ones who are leading the way to rediscovering it. And that was my strategy. You know, there were some nasty bits here and there, even in the New York Times, which had always been very kind to me, but I was articulating. A concept of the witch, which was radically different from the stereotype in a way that resonated for people. And in these articles, Phyllis, were you disclosing that you
0: were also a lawyer? Like, were you always mentioning both in the same breath?
1: Yes. And of course, in time, I lost clients. If they read an article or saw me on Bill O'Reilly's show, I lost clients over the years. What do you think that
0: was about? Do you think they were afraid you didn't have credibility or were they afraid of you? Why do you think you lost clients?
1: Business is essentially conservative. There's a need to be hip because consumers are young. And so there's always some kind of cultural appropriation. And it's one of the things I like about Marcuse, that capitalism has a way of commercializing everything and thereby taking the thread away from it. And it's true of witches, right? And it's certainly true right now. Business is conservative. And my clients were real estate people. When I would lose some of my more conservative clients who are uneasy about having a public person, especially a witch to which negative stereotypes still cling like the smell of sulfur, no matter how I Mm self-define, how articulate I might be. You drag those bones and cauldrons and pointy hats behind you. Yes, But there were increasing numbers, particularly of professional women, women of means, women from all strata of society. Whatever I lost was counterbalanced. And the one thing I learned was that you simply can't live your life in fear especially when you know that you're carrying something wise and precious and valuable and much needed. And so for all the things that it cost me, and it has, I mean, right now my partner is able to see his grandchildren, but I am not because, you know, there's antipathy towards me from people who don't understand who I am. So, right? Oh, Phyllis, that's painful. I'm sorry. I always used to say, I think everybody has to make their own decision about whether to be public and with whom to be public. And when I decided I would be public, I was like, okay, the next person I meet where it comes up in conversation, I will simply be a witch. And so I was on a bus in the 1980s coming back from visiting my mother out on the east end of Long Island. And I got into this conversation with this guy about David Dinkins, who was the mayor of New York at the time, and he had been the city clerk. And I, you know, he was a very progressive guy, but I was very cynical about him and began talking about a case that I had handled, which secured the right of witches, priests and priestesses in particular, to perform legally binding marriages in New York City. And my encounters with David Dagan had been around that issue when he had been refusing them the right to perform those marriages. You have to register as clergy, and witches had gone down to do that, friends of mine. And they had been turned away, and they came to me. And I had this background in civil liberties, and they asked me to represent them, and I took on City Hall, basically, and won.
0: Ugh. Wait, can we just take a breath? <laughs> because that alone, Phyllis, brings tears to my eyes. Because I think people sometimes, especially people of my generation and certainly younger, don't realize that it's not just about wanting to be accepted by your friends or your family or your boss. There's a whole legality issue about whether or not we have been granted the dignity and the rights to practice our path, our spirituality, some might even call it a religion, under these societally accepted. Like rubrics, right? And so the fact that there had to be a lawyer to, for example, fight to allow for people in the armed forces to have a pentagram put on their graves if they passed away in the line of fire, that is a court case, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I was very involved. With it. There are yeah. people
0: who fought for us to have the right to read tarot for money or do other witchcraft healing services and guidance services, and and that's constantly being litigated. So I just want to say a huge thank you for the work that you did around that because that really helps. I don't want to say legitimize because I believe our path is legitimate anyway, but it you know you helped make sure that we can have the same rights as other religions and spiritual practitioners.
1: Yes, that was one of my primary undertakings. I was the only attorney who was a witch for many years. And I either handled directly or consulted on groundbreaking cases in New York and across the country. I helped people to incorporate as religious organizations and get tax exempt status. I was the first person to get up legally to go back getting a permit in order to hold rituals in Central Park and cultivated that relationship for many years so that it expanded to include other people who'd previously been refused the right to hold May Day celebrations or whatever. And now it's very common, but at the time it was impossible. That was a big battle. Yeah, the right to marry in Chicago. uh, I had a big battle with the city, same thing, to get the right to perform rituals in public parks because it had been granted to other religious groups. The right to wear a pentacle in high school or to work. I was involved in the pentacle case that you were referring to. Represented soldiers, one in particular who was facing a court-martial because he had been... Uh, set upon and beaten by soldiers who'd found out that he was pagan, was in, somewhat involved with the chaplaincy handbook for the army that included the definitions of pagans and witches. And yeah, and consulted across the country for, and in New York child custody cases, the ability to keep your lease, you know, if you had a store, which has always been an issue in other parts of the country, the right to have a day off to take uh, one of the sabbats off as a religious holiday Mm. I did that for quite a while and oh Phyllis (laughs) I I'm just
0: I'm just so grateful to you I'm so grateful to you thank you for all of that it's fucking astounding and impressive and more than that it is just so needed so huge endless gratitude to you
1: very sweet of you to say it you know at the time it was just it needed to be done. You know, it was a matter of justice and I had the ability to do it. Right. And that's sort of my nature. It's like, here's your task. You know, she puts it before me and I carry the load and I'm happy to have done it. And, you know, I know there are a lot of witches now over the years, there are witches who don't want public acceptance. They eschew it, you know, and they can be rather condescending to those who are, trying to open the way. And my response is there is room for everything, but there has to be room for people who want to practice this as a spirituality or not. There has to be room for them to practice in safety and in peace. And that requires the law, then so be it. It's an ongoing battle. You know, the fact is that it has to be fought again and again and again. But now, luckily, there are lots of other lawyers. so <laughs> You don't have to do it alone. No. In fact, I'm mostly retired. I'm available to consult. I'm a <laughs> crone and I will tell you what you need to do and how to do it. But the young ones now have to pick up the sword and the shield and go out there and do the fighting. (laughs) Yes.
0: So that leads me to my last question for us, because I know we're coming up on time. You mentioned justice, and that leads me to an image of the justice tarot card. And I know that you have a new tarot deck that is coming out called the Witch's Wisdom Tarot. And so I would love to hear anything you care to share about this project and how it came to be.
1: It was remarkable. I have been a tarot reader for as long as I've been a witch. You know, Rachel Pollack, what a great first reading. And my first reading, not with Rachel Pollack, but was changed my life, obviously. And so the opportunity came along. Hay House asked me to do a new witch's tarot. And I thought, fabulous. It's time. Because the Rider-Waite-Smith deck is, and it is fabulous. It's the most popular deck in the world. It's become the foundation for countless progeny, including a lot of witches' decks. There are a lot of problems in it. It's brilliant for helping you you know, decide whether you should move or get married or whatever. A variation of it was used to, to set me on my path. But it's full of patriarchal imagery. It's full of Christian imagery and symbolism, crucifixes and angels and devils and the hierophant, you know, dressed in his papal garb. And even the court cards have a hierarchy of nobility, which is quite the antithesis, I think, of what our spirituality, witchcraft as spirituality actually is. And I know that there are people who practice it as a mere craft and not as a spirituality, but for me, it is one of the most profound spiritualities. So I wanted to do it. I was psyched. And I decided that I would journey. I would use a method of divination to find a method of divination. And I journeyed, which is a core harmonic technique used by indigenous peoples all over the globe. It's the use of steady percussive rhythm, about 200 beats a minute, usually with a frame drum. My Nordic ancestors did it. And it, Induces an altered state of consciousness, basically a theta wave, which is a longer, deeper, slower wave than alpha. It's a visionary state. And it's been used by indigenous peoples all over the globe for practical purposes, finding water, where to hunt, where to spend the the winter, Mm -hmm. very practical purposes, and also for spiritual communion. And I've been doing it for as long as I've been a witch. It's a very reliable tool that I teach. When I teach Wicca, I always teach this technique because it works. And it's profound. So I journeyed. And through a series of synchronicities, we found the artist with whom I was going to create this duck. And without knowing each other, we had never met, we had never conversed. Turns out, 40 years later, here she is. She's a witch, 20 years younger than I am, in Devon, England, journeying. Same method, right? Ah. so without knowing, we both journeyed. We both asked the same question, which is what do we need to know to create a new witch's tarot? And we both get the same answer which we found out when we finally had our first conversation. And we were both told to start with the elements. We journeyed into every card. And sometimes our journeys were the exact same. Sometimes they were different. Oftentimes they overlapped. One began, the other ended. Sometimes they didn't make sense until we put them together. I was very happy that she was willing to do that with me because it created an objective correlation of the messages that I would have gotten on my own. and I valued that immensely. And it was interesting because her journeys were more visual and mine often are, but were very much full of language, of course, because I was writing the deck. Mm-hmm. And it is a text that is written in a way that is quite unique to other texts. We got to the major arcana. We were told all sorts of things about how to work with the elements rather than using them, new ways of working with them as witches. when we began to see so clearly that the elements were profound parts of who witches have always worked honoring the four directions and done elemental magic. But this was a whole new world of understanding. So we were seeing the elements from their perspective. They were sharing their wisdom with us. We weren't using it as a metaphor system, which is what you see in the Rider-Waite-Smith deck. Elements are metaphors for human qualities, which is how contemporary witchcraft has revived with the table of correspondences, very useful. But in fact, they are not metaphors. They are aspects of who we are that we don't fully understand because we view things from our perspective rather than theirs. And to know ourselves, we have to know them, and they're willing to teach us. They are our teachers, and they taught us. And then we moved on to the Major Arcana, and lo and behold, and this is the thing that is totally unique about the deck. The major arcana had reversed its direction. I, in particular, found myself in the world, not as the last card, but the first card, and it was on fire. We had a huge thing with the publisher who freaked when we sent the image of the world on fire, and the pilgrim was... Our, us, you, the reader, leaving this world, this metropolis that's on fire, and she's heading into the natural world. They were so distraught with the image, and we explained, because at that point, we journeyed enough that we had seen, we'd been showed, that we were reversing the direction of the major arcana. The Rider deck has, the last card, the world, has a figure floating in space, surrounded by symbols of the four archangels disembodied the direction of the spiritual journey in the Rider deck, which came from the Golden Dawn, mm-hmm. which had a, and a very Christian orientation, in fact, that Waite and Smith later had in their magical work, is to go from, from the earthly plane, from the world, and leave it. Enlightenment comes by entering realms of spirit, by going towards heaven, right? Away. Transcending. Transcending. Ours was the opposite. We went down and into the world and came to a place of enlightenment. And rather than beginning with the magician and the ideal of the control of the world to make magic, we come finally to the council of of all beings. Mm -hmm. And the communion that occurs when we're in right relationship with the, the divinity of the world of creation that is embodied all around and within us. It is a journey of initiation and unmaking and making again. A lot of the major arcana cards are very different. All the patriarchal stuff is gone. There's no devil. There's no hierophant. There's the wisdom keeper and shamans. And it's very different. And the court cards are now shapeshifters. There are witches and goddesses and a tremendous amount of diversity, some gender diversity and Absolutely some cultural diversity. We went from... Different skin tones. Across Europe, up to the North Pole, down into Africa, to the Middle East. We The Baba Yaga appears in a very profoundly different way. You, you mean Eastern Europe, philip Eastern Europe and Russia, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then to the Americas. The Ancestor appears, and the Wisdom Keeper is quite extraordinary. And that journey, I loved writing this because it is very different there's a wisdom section which is visionary and it gives you an account of the journeys in the little capsule of it and it's meant to provoke visions and there's a council which is very direct this is what the card means in terms of your life your spirituality your practical concerns and then there's a little magic which is very potent for every card and it was profound and we trusted that what we were shown was what the world needed to see. And what we were told was what needed to be known and what we needed to share with the world. So in the end, what we are sharing is a measure of cultural diversity as it was shared with us and deep universal truths that are shared across cultures. And that are expressions of the magic of a world, that is sacred and divine and a realization that a very different idea of magic that I've been cultivating, you know, and is the subject of all of my books, really, as I've matured, my sense of magic has matured, but was there from the very beginning that magic is not about controlling and commanding. It's about communion and coming into right relationship with ourselves and with the context in which we Are blessed to live out our lives and I wasn't sure if you build it will it work you know we were like well we built this but will it tell people whether they should get married or move yeah should we leave the country you know or should we be prepared to go to prison it seems to be working I've been doing a lot of readings for people with it and it's working it's placing the smaller questions of our lives in their greater context and it is infusing people, I, I think, with a sense of inspiration that the small struggles that we have direct us to our greater reason for being here. I hope it's going to be a blessing and a gift as it was for us. I mean, it certainly was epic and life-changing for me. Mm. It, it was deeply validating of the path forward that I'm, that was signaled, I guess, by the Libyan Sybil and that I'm on now. I'm back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> She's back. Well, Phyllis, I am so glad that you are back because you are a blessing and a gift. And I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with me today to share your wisdom and for all the evolving, fluid, bright, potent magic that you are generating and that you have brought into so many lives. Thank you so much, Phyllis. I'm so, so, so thrilled to get to speak with
1: you. Likewise, Pam, I can't tell you how much it means to me that there are these wise, brilliantly inquisitive, culturally rebellious and yet you're creating culture, right? We rebel against what needs to be broken and remade and you are remaking it in the image of the witch. And I can't tell you how much it means when you enter cronehood, you come to the time of realization that time is limited and knowing that there are wise ones on the road To create the future I'm at peace in ways that I was not before I am optimistic in ways that I wasn't before I am fully engaged I'm inspired by all of you and by you in particular so this has been a tremendous joy for me I'm looking forward to more conversations in the future
0: many many more I hope and thank you so much Phyllis for leading the way that's it for the show Thank you again to Phyllis Curat for her leadership and for blazing such a bright trail for all of us. If you want to learn more about Phyllis, do check her out at her website, phylliscurat.com. And our conversation went on far beyond what you just listened to, so you can hear even more of this interview via a bonus episode, which will be dropping next week on the Witchwave Patreon. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently, drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the witchwire. The Witch Wave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs. Thank you, Rachel. And myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Paschal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchwavePod, and you can check out my Witch Emoji for iPhone by going to Witch Emoji or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider picking up my book, Awaking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more Witchwave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash witchwave thank you so much for listening witches are the future i'll catch you next time on the witch wave